Hey, I'm Josh Chambers. And I'm Leif Parton. Welcome to How Humans Change. Every episode, we speak with someone who's undergone some kind of change, and we get the backstory. In episode one, we spoke with LA producer Brandon Phibbs. Brandon's search for truth led him from his family's deep Christian roots into becoming what he calls a fairly evangelical atheist. It was fascinating to hear how many different things influenced that change, things like gun control, politics, 9-11, homosexuality, the military, NASA. It was just a really interesting conversation. And I think you'll hear that Brandon just had this kind, transparent, articulate communication style that made speaking with him a real pleasure. And if you guys like this episode, please subscribe. We've got a bunch more coming soon. If you or anyone you know has a story they'd like to share, um, please reach out at howhumanschange.com. And without further ado, here is Brandon Phibbs. Our favorite first question is, uh, what were you like in high school? Oh, what was I like in high school? Maybe you should get my girlfriend on the line because while, while we're not yet married, we've known each other since we were in school. Uh, really? We school in Colorado. Yeah, we've known each other for 30-some years. Uh, in high school, I was the um, overachieving, um, tie-wearing, even though that was not necessary uh, or called for, um, senior <laughs> class president, homecoming king. So I, it was a – but that I should add, you know, given a class of 69 people, it, it's not like it, it was a large class to, you know – um, to draw from. So it, it's not as impressive as it sounds. Well, I was going to say, so the first half I was getting ready to be like, wow, you were a total nerd, but then you came out with, I'm a, I was a homecoming queen and class president. So how did King, you, King. T- sounds like you really bridged those two worlds effectively. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what you can do with, you know, a couple payouts under the table and stuff like that. You can really grease the skids. That's amazing. Wait, 69 people. Did you go to like a, a private school? I did. Went to a, a small private school in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, went there. I went to uh, went there from uh, third grade through graduation. Oh, I lived in Colorado Springs for a year. That uh, that is quite quite a little town. Yes, it is. It is conservative mecca. It's it's magical. <laughs> <laughs> you what? know, I, the older I've got, the more I, I've um, come to recognize how lucky I was to grow up in Colorado. It was an extraordinary state to have been raised in. And we um, camp. We, we were really poor growing up. And so we didn't you know, I never went to Disneyland or anything until I was actually 40 years old. Pardon me. But um, all the things that we could afford to do were go camping. And I realize now as an adult how exceptional that was and how many amazing experiences I had growing up in Colorado. But I will say this, um, if I were ever to go back, uh, it would not be to Colorado Springs. Uh, we, the, we don't exactly see eye to eye on things, Colorado Springs and I, I understand that completely. Yeah, that, that is, it's a very unique, uh, it's a, it is a very unique area. So, uh, based on Colorado Springs upbringing and, Based on what I've talked to you about a little bit over email, it sounds like you grew up, I'm guessing, in an evangelical home, Christian evangelical home. Yeah, certainly. In fact, we moved. So I was born uh, and spent my first couple of years in Oregon. Um, and my father, who was a pastor out there, moved the family out, moved our family uh, out to Colorado um, to start a church with another gentleman. And the church didn't end up working out, but we stayed in Colorado. So yeah, we um, I went to the same church for... 25 years, something like that, which, you know, it would have, uh, of course, we were assuming it was going to be my dad's church. Um, and he actually got out of the ministry after that. But uh, I am the son and the grandson of ministers. In fact, my grandparents were missionaries for 20 some years in West Africa. My mom was raised in Africa. Wow. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and my family, my extended family, my great aunt and uncle uh, founded Christ for the Nations Bible College, which is one of the largest Pentecostal Bible colleges in the country which I attended. My head is, I don't like, there's like 50 different directions I want to go in the conversation. (laughs) But just to maybe uh, fast forward really quick, the, just tell us the shift uh, in as succinctly as possible. And then we'll talk about how it happened, but the religious shift, just so people know kind of while you grew up in Colorado Springs, pastor's son, missionaries all around. And now the big shift for you is fill in the blank. Yeah, I'm I'm an atheist, and I'm I'm actually uh, a rather um, evangelical atheist. 
Got it's it. something that is very, very important to me and, uh, and something that I still, uh, think about constantly. It's just, it's, I would call, you know, a lot of people, if they deconvert, they don't consider it to be an important part of their lives anymore. It's just one more facet of them, of their lives. For me, it's, it's still a very defining thing in my life and something that I still spend a lot of time thinking about and examining. Interesting. So let's talk about the amazing comment you made to me via email, because when I wrote and we were talking about, hey, it sounds like you've made a big shift in your faith. You wrote back and said something to uh, the effect of, it seemed to maybe start when you decided you were going to vote for John Kerry because a good Christian boy wouldn't wouldn't vote Democrat. Your mom was questioning your very identity at that point. Yeah, it was John Kerry when he was running for president. Yeah, that was the first Democrat I'd ever voted for. In fact, I had previous to that, I'd worked in Washington, D.C. Um, as an intern for our local congressman uh, from the 5th District of Colorado. Um, I saw myself going into politics. That's I thought I saw myself as like a, a Christian statesman, someone to bring God back to politics in D.C. And uh-huh. um, I, I, you know, a sort of so like a Donald Trump, like a Donald Trump. Well, yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> pretty much, Trump. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very godly man we're discussing. <laughs> um, and yeah, that my, my ambition for from for many years was was uh, Christian politics. And then, uh, yeah, that all changed. Ironically, when I was in the Navy, um, the first, you know, I, I would argue that changes in people's lives come about not in isolation, but they are generally tied to a larger daisy chain of events. Yeah. And frequently, you know, my, my deconversion, my change in faith was also linked to other things, including even my politics. So when I was in the Navy, I remember the very first issue on which I began liberalizing was gun control. And I remember just investigating and reading as many things as possible, getting online and printing out statistics and just doing all of this research and coming to this conclusion that, wait, I was growing up, I was always pro guns and I changed my mind on that. And that freaked out my family. Um, like so much so that my mom even had a a dear family friend of ours, write me a multi-page letter. And I, I look back at it now and I go, why did you care so much? And I think maybe for her, it was, it was a slippery slope type argument. You know, she saw, Hey, I I know where this can go. You're pulling a thread and this could go other places. And and indeed it did. The, The next thing that I jumped into was the death penalty. And, and again, all of this is like when I'm in a, I'm in the Navy, I'm in a very wow. conservative place. Where um, are you in the Navy, Brandon? Are you deployed at this point? Or are you just in, uh, I, where are you? I am in Sicily. I uh, spent, so after all of my training, which took place in California and in Florida, um, I spent three years in Sicily. God, amazing. And uh, yeah, uh, they were phenomenal phenomenal years of my life. That was wow. an extraordinary. And this experience. is your, this has got to be your early mid twenties. This is my early mid twenties. Yeah. I got out of the Navy when I was 29. Um, yeah, no 28 or so. Yeah. I went okay. in when I was 23. So I, I was, I even went in a little bit later than, uh, age wise than a lot of the people around me. But yeah, just, that was, I just began those political shifts were really kind of sending me in different directions. And I got out, um, I got out the week of September 11th and you no. cannot get out. You can't get out of the military um, overseas. You can't out process and do all that paperwork. You have to do it on a, on a base in America. And since I'd already done um, my aforementioned bit uh, in DC where I was an intern, I said, Hey, I want to out process in Washington, DC. And so they let me. So on September 11th, 2001, I was right over by the Pentagon signing my paperwork to get out of the, uh, out of the military when it sounded like someone knocked over a massive filing cabinet on the floor above me. In fact, so much so that I nodded to somebody next to me and said, oh my God, I hope whoever is up there is okay or their foot wasn't beneath that because that sounded like that would have hurt. Right. And of course, the thing that we were doing at that moment was watching the TV because the towers were burning in New York. Seconds later, this guy comes running in going, the Pentagon's been hit, the Pentagon's been hit. We all raced outside and there's the Pentagon wreathed in flames with these you know, mushroom clouds of, of dark smoke heading up into the heavens. And um, 
yeah, so that was my experience of 9-11. That's, that's the week I got out of the military. They let me out. I, I went through this conflicted months of should I get out? Um, and Right, because 9 11s happening. So you're thinking, yeah. oh my gosh, this is like of all the times that I should be serving, this is it, right? Yeah, I mean, this is why you join, right? Um, my job was to track submarines from the air. I was a combination of, I always tell people, I was a goose from Top Gun and Jonesy from Hunt for October calling Crazy Ivan, stuff like that. I oh tracked submarines, gosh. but did it from a plane. And uh, so there's not much use for that in the desert. And so I didn't stay and they didn't uh, have me back. But there was a while there where I really thought I was going to be coming back. But all that backstory to say immediately after that, of course, George W. Bush just started going after Iraq. And I that was the straw that broke my political camel's back. Interesting. Because I was like, wait, this is not why are we going after Iraq? What is this going on? Why are we doing this? I lost a lot of friends, became very politically active at that point. And that was just the thing that completely just switched me over politically. And ever since then, I've just kind of embraced liberal causes and left my conservative roots behind. So what, most do, you of them anyway. what do you think it was about you that allowed you to and inspired you to go researching gun control statistics? Did something happen or did you just... Where you think you were born with that type of personality that was like, I'm curious about this issue now. Uh, the latter, I think. I don't recall any particular thing that set me off. Um, I just remember doing the crazy research. And the funny thing is, I mean, I guess I've always been one to, you don't willy-nilly make a decision. And, you know, I know that we'll talk about the faith issues uh, in, a little, in a little bit. But it's the same sort of thing I took with that facet of my, of my life change as well. Um, Particularly when it came to faith, um, there are eternal consequences based on this decision, and therefore one doesn't willy-nilly make that kind of decision. And I treated even my politics th stuff like that. Like I'm not going to change my mind unless there is a reasonable explanation or a reason why I would do that. And um, yeah, and I I didn't want to be making a decision based on an emotional reason. I wanted to make it based uh, evidence-based reason. And the funny thing is. I was, of course, at this time, still very much a person of faith and was for many years after. Um, and, and now looking back, I'm kind of like, ah, I, I was always that person who demanded facts and evidence before making decisions. Um, but I just didn't realize it. It, it that maybe that's like the first time it kind of really reared its head and said, this is how you figure the world out. Demand proof of things. Was it uh, was it as unexpected and random as it sounds as you're as you're describing it to pick gun control first because obviously you then went on to the death penalty there were a number of potential hot topics you could have tackled why was that one your first one I, I, you know what i don't know there may have been something that that set up the question that posed the question and put it in front of my face and that's why i went for it uh it may also just be that you know within the conservative community in which i was raised um those were big issues, you know, Second Amendment rights and stuff like that. You know, that was just a big deal. Um, yeah, it would be interesting. I don't – I didn't journal or anything. There was no Facebook yeah. at the time. So there's. I would have loved to have gone back and, and wondered, you know, was there a school shooting? Was there something that made yeah. me say, I'm going to stop and I'm going to reexamine this and I'm going to see if this is something that I truly believe? Because, you know, I was in an age – it was in my mid-20s. Um, I was in an age in which you have to recognize – do I believe these things because they are my beliefs or do I merely believe these things because they have been passed down to me by parents? And, and of course that's what kids do. We, we believe and accept the things that our parents um, bring us up in. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But at some point you have to then look at those and go, okay, I'm going to keep these beliefs because I have looked at the, uh, looked at this issue and I accept it and I, it, it, you know, I bring it on board myself or I reject it and go a different different path, and that's what happened. Yeah, we've we, we talked to a lot of people about this uh, idea of change, and and one of the things that I'm most fascinated by is what it is, what the is it a personality trait, or are there experiences that cause someone to take ownership over a concept, for example, or just rethink something, because. There are plenty of people in our world who don't rethink things or don't take maybe full ownership of things. And that's not necessarily a negative thing all the time either. But then there are other people that seem to be 
just restless with the concepts and ideas that they've been uh, inundated with or that they grew up with. Do you remember as a kid kind of thinking like, I'm not so sure about this, or was it I'm in hook, line, and sinker until your 20s? You know, when it came to issues of politics, I never questioned it. Um, I was always um, hook, line, and sinker um, into it. Uh, Issues of faith, I never questioned things, but I was never – I was never as passionate as I felt I should be. Even when I went to Bible college, I didn't have that sort of burning zeal that said, this is my identity. This is something I want to rush out, stop people on the street, shake them and say, have you heard? Have you heard of Jesus? You know, can I can I talk to you about Jesus? Um, I never I never had that. And I always felt guilty about that. Yeah, Um, because the people you were around had that level of or at least were exuding that level of zealousness. I think it's a combination of absolutely being surrounded by people that were like that. Yes, but also that either way, that's what was expected of you. That's how you were. That's how we were told we should be. Yeah. Sure, especially and, with your parents. And and, yeah, absolutely. And, and and if you do believe that there is this one true way to life and salvation, and and if you're not on it, there is eternal damnation. Then you should want to go run out to the street and save as many people as you can. You right. know, even now as an atheist. I have no problem with uh, Christians evangelizing to to me or, you know, wanting to wanting to save me and stuff like that, because if you truly believe what you believe, you should be doing that thing. Um, And I never felt that way. I never wanted to do that. I was even embarrassed by it, I, I admit. And I and I wonder why I was embarrassed by it. Was there a part of my brain that I couldn't even access that was recognizing even then that? that two plus two is not adding up to four in this equation or something like that. But when it came to politics, which is, I'm sorry to to deviate there when it came to politics. Um, yeah, I, I was hook, line and sinker. Um, I never questioned those things for whatever reason. So it's fascinating because another thing that we see, or I've had, I feel like it's happened in my own life where these unexpected chinks in the armor appear uh, and they're not on the topic that you're staring straight in the face, but they're mm-hmm. on a secondary or tertiary topic. And that's almost the like the crack in the dam where all of a sudden leaks start springing elsewhere that cause you to look at the other things and be like, wait a second, how do I actually feel about this? So sure. do you feel like you were on the religious front sort of like you're, you're looking at all these people and saying, wow, you guys are really zealous. I don't know if I feel quite the same way and I feel bad about that. And then maybe like, I'm going to go check into this other thing that I've sort of bought hook, line and sinker. But at the time, religion was just off the table. It's interesting. No, I don't. You know, my the first time I had a, my first faith crisis was also when I was in the Navy. Um, and I remember it happened because I had just read the book, um, Contact by Carl Sagan. And there's a very diff the, the book and the movie are different in that they're both exceptional. But I remember when I saw the movie Contact, um, I literally went home, went back to my barracks, got out my Bible and did like a little personal Bible study because I was just so in awe of the universe. It just put me in this amazing place of look what God has done, this amazing cosmos. Uh... And I was just I was inspired. The book, however, of course, being being a book can communicate so many more things, so many more levels, so many more degrees of complexity. And um, the book really got me thinking about, uh, had a lot more questions that I couldn't answer when it came to my faith. Um, Carl Sagan, of course, was an atheist. And so there, there were lots of things embedded within the text. Yeah. And the book set me off on a faith crisis. And I remember writing a friend at the time and just kind of spilling out my guts going, Oh my God. Oh my God. I don't know how to answer these questions. I need help here. And the reply I got back was a very well-meaning, you just have faith, Brandon, and it's okay. Just have faith. And and I took, and I took that on board and I kind of went, she's right. I'm okay. God's in control. I have faith. And I kind of like, I mentally lifted up the rug, swept it all underneath the rug, put the rug down and went back about my life. But what was happening, I you know later would learn is that over the years, those sort of things were just metastasizing inside of me to the point where they came back out of the rug years later, much bigger, much stronger, 
And then I was, I was like, okay, I have got to confront these. And when I did, um, everything changed. So you are sweeping in under the rug and you are starting to get more liberal in your political views. Uh, at what point did you start worshiping demons and <laughs> <laughs> eating babies? I started drinking the blood of babies around April of 2000 and whatever. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. So you're, you're, um, you're processing a lot of political change and then you had this spike of fear that came from contact and shoved it back down deep where it belongs. And then you just, how many years in what's going on uh, as you begin to approach this new horizon or this new aha moment? Yeah. You know, what was funny about it is that I always tell people the final years of my faith were the best, were my favorite. Did I lose you? So growing up Pentecostal, the first thing I did, um, so at the time, I didn't recognize it for what it was, which was a slow retreat out of something. Um, but I left the Pentecostal tradition and went to a high church Anglican tradition uh, for the last years of my faith, um, within which I found a phenomenal amount of fulfillment. And I remember telling one of my friends um, how we, how badly my family was taking that, because growing up, anything that was liturgical was um, the sort of of uh, white blasted tombs full of dead men's bones, you know, yeah. all liturgy and no, no heart. No and there's nothing yeah. to it. No spirit. Yeah. This was, this was not real. These were not real Christians. These were not true Christians. And so just to jump and, in, Brandon, sorry for people who are listening, as far as I know, the, the big difference, like a liturgical, it just means that people are doing pre-written prayers, doing those types of things together. And there's a lot more, it looks a lot more Catholic almost. Uh, very than, much so. And, Go ahead. And I would argue that, that I would argue that my Pentecostal tradition is every bit as liturgical because, you know, you, you still get a bulletin when you walk into your Pentecostal church every day and it still says praise and worship and then an, and then greeting by the pastor and then an operatory with the song. And like, I mean, it's every bit the same way. It's just not spelled out as much. And it's the spelling. So for people in, in that kind of tradition, a tradition in which they ex, they want to leave a lot of freedom for God to move spontaneously. They are fearful of and distrustful of anything that kind of boxes it in and says, this is how we're going to do it. And we don't deviate outside of that box. They little understanding that the liturgy is actually this beautiful expression of, of how, of how worship is conducted and, and ensuring that, that everything kind of like you dot every I and cross every T and stuff like that. But yeah. it, it was not, looked at, um, by like my family, um, in a good way at all. And I remember telling my friend that my family was reacting badly to that. And he looked at me and he's like, I get it totally. You, you're, he goes, you were an English major. Like you love things that are beautiful. You love things that are rich and complex and full of history. Um, he goes, it doesn't seem weird to me at all that this is the, the route that you would take. Interesting. So how much did your family, it sounds like every time you took a step in another direction, you uh, maybe accidentally or on purpose, that's a question, were exposing this to your family and then not getting much support. Like how, how bad was Thanksgiving, I guess, is the question. <laughs> <laughs> Thanksgivings have been uh, uncomfortable for a great many years. Uh, you know what? I think one of the things that is hardest about making phenomenal life changes is family and friends rarely understand why. And even if they understand why, they don't, they, having not made the change themselves, lack the, pro, the context and the empathy to, to let it go. Uh, they're hurt by it. They're angered by it. They're befuddled. They're bewildered. Um, and so certainly in both the political uh, changes and in the religious changes, yes, those things have, have baffled and saddened my family and does make, you know, you realize after you make those changes, how critical those things are to the superstructure of your relationship with your family and yeah. friends to the point where once you strip those things away, you, you still have a lot of, of connections. You still obviously have a lot of reasons to, to, to be together and want to spend time together, but that sours a lot of things and really makes it so that you suddenly walk in every room you walk into with your family is full of invisible giant elephants 
in the room and not just one, but they're, they're lumbering everywhere and you can't, there's no place to stand or sit because there's so many elephants and you're just trying to dance around the elephants all the time. And that's emotionally exhausting. Yeah. So this is building over the years. How important did you find yourself hoping that your family would uh, join you in those changes or were you hoping for some empathy? What were you looking for with them? No, my, my siblings um, have followed a similar trajectory um, oh, as I have. Interesting. Um, both mostly in politics, although my brother, my brother wouldn't call himself a liberal. He would call himself an anarchist libertarian. Um, <laughs> so he, um, but in, in terms of the faith, uh, in terms of leaving the faith, both my sister and my brother um, have are on the same place as I am with that. So I, there's a lot of empathy that, that I have there. And I, the older I get, the more I realize that my siblings are my best friends. I just absolutely I adore my my brother and sister. And so that's been a that's their wow. my like, main lifeline. Hmm. Um, I never wanted my mom to change. I was never kind of like seeking that out to to change her. And I never expected that she would. You know, you do hear these ca- these occasional stories sometimes where, you know, a child deconverts. And then later their parent does. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I couldn't even conceive of a world in which that kind of thing would could could ever happen. But I'm sure people said that about me, too. You know, and so that's anything is possible. But I'm not trying to do that. Um, I just would love to. Just at least be accorded a certain amount of of respect and. um, And, you know, it's, it's not that I'm disrespected. My family just doesn't talk about it. It's just kind of something that, you know, we talk about a great many things and this is just the one thing they kind of put off. Yeah. This is a defining thing in your life, you know, and especially if you've believed it all your life. And if you are in your early sixties, as my mother is to, to reach the recognition that I may have believed something that is untrue and not just believed it, but devoted so much of my life and energy and everything and money to it. That's something that most people don't even want to, I don't even want to go in the room where I could discover that this is wrong because, oh my God, what would that mean to my psyche? Yeah. Change is, is terrifying and uh, it doesn't matter what direction it's going. And when it's to your point, when it's this foundational and you've built so much of your being on top of it, it could be politics, religion, sexuality, geography, career, anything. But when (laughs) that moment where you're staring something new in the eye and you're like, oh shit, this is maybe not what I thought it was. Um, that can be really scary. Very scary. Well, especially, you know, with politics, you know, the, the things that, that undid politics from or politics, uh, I should say faith, the things that, that destroyed my faith was science. Uh, and I always tell people not science in some sort of like nefarious sort of way that a lot of like evangelical Christians like to paint science, this godless thing out to destroy Christianity. Um, but science as in this, this means by which we dissect the universe, we dissect everything around us and figure out how things work. Uh, and it was with that kind of, you know, I just had new skepticism. The thing, the, the, the thing that reawakened the faith crisis in my life, um, in my mid thirties was, um, hanging out with a lot of scientists. Uh, my ex-wife worked, continues still to this day, works for NASA. And I was with a lot of scientists um, and exposed to a lot of science. And it was a lot of science that it was very contradictory to my belief system and the way I'd like been raised. Like what kind of things, Brandon? Like the earth isn't young type obvious correct, ones? Correct. Like, got it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just really obvious ones like that. Yeah, that there was that evolution is untrue, that the, uh, that the earth is 6,000 or so years old. These, all those like cliches, all those kind of like meme worthy jokes that people have about evangelical Christianity, um, were dinosaurs are true real? For great, great many people. Dinosaurs were real, but they, they existed at the same time as human beings. Like, so these, the, these were, I, I believe these honestly and enthusiastically well into my thirties. Yeah. And, and then suddenly as I'm spending time around all of this science, I started going, wait, that can't possibly be true because of <laughs> just this and because of that. And, Did, and it was those things that made me go, okay, I need to take a good hard look at my faith because these things are demonstrably not true. And I often wonder why didn't I just have a more liberal faith? Because there are plenty of Christians out there who accept evolution and accept a, a billion year lifespan of the, of the planet right. and, and and, and it doesn't mess with their faith. Why did it like 
completely undermine mine. Right. Um, well, that's my question. Because, yeah, I didn't stop. It's because I didn't stop there. Like I just started doing more and more research and more and more research. And it was like I pulled that that string on the sweater and I, it just kept coming and it kept coming and I so just kept pulling and it kept like, two, I have two questions for you. I know I'm interrupting, but when you're when these moments of, of interacting with these scientists is taking place, are you at this point just are you are you responding to them and saying, No, it isn't the earth the earth is six thousand years old? Or are you quietly listening and thinking, wait a second? Like is it through argument or just self-analysis that you start to realize that this stuff is off? You know, it wasn't argument. Um, and I think, and I often, I think argument does come, here, here, here's what I've, I have found in my own life and in the lives of others. And it's funny when I see other people going through certain things and I'm like, oh, I know where you're going. You don't know where you're going, but I know where you're going. And I find that argument is one of the last gasps of something, of a belief system before it dies. Um, and I know I remember like my sister is gay and I remember when she came out to the family, um, how, how much I, I was like, I love you, Gabby, but you're wrong. And this is against the Bible uh-huh. and all of this stuff. And, and she would be like, but I ju- I love, you know, I love this person. And how can that be wrong? Well, Gabby, it's wrong because Roman says in chapter and verse, blah, 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 blah. And I remember even having another friend who, uh, a Christian friend who was very liberal on the issue. And, and I was like, no, because mm. this, and I'm like, I am going to cite you chapter and verse. And I remember getting really intense and angry about it. And then instantly as I was done with that, done, I just dropped it all. I didn't care anymore. I accepted my sister. I accepted her lifestyle. Whoa. And this, and be just, I, and I realized that looking back on it, what I was doing there was like the last, my, my emotional energy was just fight, fight, fight. And then I'm spent. I can't do this anymore. You win. Um, wait, wait, wait. Okay. Have, Okay, hold on, Go hold on, it. hold on. So, uh, fill in the gaps between um, contact and sweeping things under the rug, and your sister coming out and deciding that's it. I'm not, I can't do it anymore. Were there other moments between those two things? No. So, in in the grand timeline of things, I was still very much a believer, even when I accepted my sister. So it was just one more issue where I just I I was liberalizing um, on even in my faith, even in faith issues. Uh, and I just didn't care. Like I remember when I got married, I told my mom that I was inviting my sister, of course, but I I told my mom I'm inviting her girlfriend as well. And that caused a huge stink. And I said, mom, I would rather err on the side of love than on the side of judgment. Yeah, and how'd, how'd that go over? No, not, not well at all because you always err. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, we're, we're laughing because I think I can say for myself anyways, I've, I've been there and it's, it's funny kind of, but it's actually pretty darn sad. It's awful. It's awful. Uh, you just, it's have- awful. yeah, if you're looking at it analytically, it's funny when you're in the middle of it and it's you and people you love, it's sad. I mean, and there's a certain emotional detachment that you can get and, and laugh at it as well. No, no, no bones about that, but yeah, it's, so those sorts of things have, of course, caused gigantic rifts uh, in my family. But when I did, and so even my sister being gay and, and accepting that, that's just one more thing that fed into my deconversion experience. When I'm reading the Bible and it's talking about, you know, you, you do not suffer the homosexual to live and he's an abomination. And I'm like, wait, that abomination is no longer some abstract person I hear about from the pulpit or on the news. That's my sister. Okay. Let's let's start looking at this a little more deeply. And so, you know, when it came to like human and cosmic origins, I was like, all right, the Bible's wrong about this. Might there be other things that the Bible is wrong about? Let's go. Let's keep going here. Let's not stop at this point. Let's keep going and see if there are other issues that need to be examined here. And at this and, point, is your fear level starting to diminish or are you still pretty terrified as you're facing a, a shift in a fundamental foundational element of your life? You know, I'll tell you, it was, I remember the exact moment, uh, the exact time and place, the exactly the, the color of the sky, the setting sun, everything. When I realized that I wasn't afraid anymore. And the reason, and I reason I remember that is because that happened weeks or months, I should probably say after I, after I decided that I did not believe in God anymore. And I went through these months of abject terror 
of, oh my God, I'm going to hell. And then I remember I, I had gotten off the subway. It was when I was in DC. I'd gotten off the subway. I was walking back to my house and I stopped in the middle of the sidewalk and I said, Brandon, you don't believe in this anymore. Why are you afraid of something you don't believe in? And instantly the fear vaporized and has never come back. It, it just, it, it was this sort of like no brainer sort of duh moment, but I had to work my way through it um, before being able to get out of it. You know, I'm struck by so many things what you're saying. So it sounds like the way that your brain works and the way that your system works is if, if you can find a maybe a logical or rational reason for something your emotions are you're able to sync up your emotions with that is that fair to say mm. i think that's fair to say i think that's actually a pretty cool insightful thing to say actually because i especially now today i want to make as few decisions based on emotion as possible um and I don't mean that in some sort of like cold, calculating, robotic sort of way. What I mean by that is if I'm going to believe in something, I don't want it to be for subjective reasons. I don't want it to be because I wish it were true or I want it to be true. If I'm going to believe in something, it's I want to be as close to because it is true because I've investigated it as possible. And why, um, why is that important to you now? And is that, is that a new development? And why is it important? You know, looking back, even talking about the stuff with the gun control and 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 uh, and things like that, it clearly was important to me even then. Although I didn't recognize it as something that was important to me, it's certainly a bedrock of my life now. I want to believe as many true things as possible and not believe as many false things as possible because I see what happened. I mean, I'm not saying that if everyone believed all true things that like we would be, have some sort of la di da utopia, but their human history is has the blood, the ground is soaked by the blood of people who believe things for wrong reasons and then decided that because of that belief, they were going to either make other people believe at the point of a sword or they were going to insist that life and legislation be certain ways because of their belief. And if, if you're going to do those things, you better be damn sure that what you believe is true uh, or else you you become a menace to the human race. I see. So there's a at this point you're you're simultaneously straddling your own personal worldview and your individuality and beliefs and then recognizing how that manifests itself at a cultural level. So the fear for you in believing something subjectively or just because it was always that way is well crap, am I now contributing to what potentially could be a hurtful or problematic or even violent cultural norm? I would say that's absolutely true, but it's more than that. To, it's more than that. Also, I I want to believe things that are true because that's when I that's that's the end all. That's the like I get to figure out how things work. When you can decode the universe, when you can decode your own life, when you can figure out how things work, when you arrive at the answer that has been reasoned out and is supported by evidence, when you get to that point, it's beautiful. It's it's. It's some transcendent moment where you're like, I found the answer. I found, I've unlocked the final door with the final key on the final end of the journey. And I'm looking at it in all of its complexity, its beauty. And I figured it out. I decoded it. There's something extraordinary about that. Um, I find, you know, and here's the thing, the, the thing with my faith now, and this is the weird thing is, you know, I have a YouTube channel and I, and one of the very first, and I do most of the content is either like science and or um, atheism related. and one of the very first videos I did was on the fact that as an atheist, I have far more awe and wonder when I think about the cosmos and the world around me than I ever did as a person of faith, which sounds weird because as a person of faith, I believed there was this omnipotent God, this extraordinary, all-powerful force that created the world and all of its intricacy and complexity and, and beauty and, and terror. And that should, one would think, inspire more awe and wonder than it came about through these random processes of evolution and, and, and everything else. Um, but it doesn't. like Because now, once I start to get to looking at the world for how it really is, seeing the matrix, if you will, behind, behind the surface and standing in awe of that, I find that so much more beautiful and so much more awe-inspiring. Interesting. I was going to earlier when you were talking about that 
defining moment, stopping on your walk home and seeing the sunset. I was so struck as you were even talking about it. And then you made the remark that the fear that you were feeling was the fear that you were still buying into the belief system that you were looking to eschew, that you were scared that hell was in your future. Now, when you think about uh, changes or evolutions in your thinking, is there still a type of fear there? Maybe it's not the, oh man, I might be going to hell, but is there a fear uh, of something else? Or have you had to work through the type of, a different type of fear as you've encountered big changes? No. Um, and we've had, I've had between my girlfriend and I, we've had a number of people in our lives um, die in the last couple of years. Some, oh, some oh, people sorry. very close to us. And, and it's kind of, it's, it's kind of forces you to say, all right, do you really believe what you believe? Because you have to be able to, to believe this and practice this in the face of these sort of odds in, you know, when you're facing down stuff that makes it really real. And I know that in my own life, and I wonder if I I don't have fear. I like, I believe that when I die, I end and I will be no more in the cosmos in the exact same way that before I was born, I was no more. I don't think my consciousness lives on. I think I just stop, full stop, done. And that doesn't give me fear. It, it makes me sad. You know, I, I remember Christopher Hitchens when he was dying. I, he, he's, his uh, version of what death is, is the most poignant for me that I've ever heard. And he said, leave death is like being at the greatest party you've ever been at. All your best friends are there. They're serving the best scotch. You are having so much fun. And then someone comes up to you and says, sir, you need to leave. You're not going to be able to come back. The party is continuing without you, but you unfortunately need to leave and won't be able to come back. And that's for me, that's for me what death is. I'm not scared of death. I'm not scared that there's some sort of anything beyond now. I, I, I don't have any sort of fear. It's, it's the sadness that comes from, I, I don't want to leave this behind because this life is amazing. And I'm learning so many amazing things and meeting so many amazing people. I don't want to leave this behind. And that's, and, and, but it also conversely makes you really appreciate the life you do have. Because now that I've taken away the belief system of of I'm working towards something that, that this life is some sort of dry run for for a future eternity. Now that I've removed that from the table, I recognize that I have only this. This is my only. This is my one shot for everything for for happiness to help others to learn things. This is it, and what I do with this right here right now defines everything about who I am right now, and it really focuses me to just to live my life for right now and burn intensely and brightly and grab the proverbial bull by the horns. One of the things we, we skipped over as you were talking was the fact that your siblings have all undergone significant changes considering your family origin and what was a career decision. It seems like your family was kind of career Christians. Do you think your parents did something that like embedded a seed of critical thinking and you guys, so what happened? How did you all just kind of be like, yeah, we're going to leave the last couple generations of traditions behind now? That's a very good question. And it's one that I've asked myself often. It's one that's asked of me often because, you know, I feel very bad for my mother. She did an exemplary job as a single mom raising three kids who turned out very well and, you know, didn't get in trouble with the law or all good in school. Um, and yet she, I feel bad for her because all of her kids have in one way or another kind of left her belief systems and her guidance and her shepherding behind. And I do feel for that. I can't imagine how that, that must weigh on her, uh, a, a gay, a gay married daughter, a, a, a atheist son who works in Hollywood, you know, these sorts of things that none of that can be, can be good for her. I don't know that she did. I don't, I mean, she raises to be thinkers, but also the, the faith tradition which we were raised did not encourage us to question things or look at things too deeply if the, if the sort of like answers could hurt what you believe. 
And that was one of the things for me, that was one of the things that I valued most about the Anglican tradition in which I spent the final years of my faith. Because the thing about the Anglican tradition was, no, mind, mind goes in there. Use your mind. Think about these things. Critically think about these things. And it was almost the first time in my faith where I'd been given permission to question and think things. And once I did, you know, I, I quote unquote, I thought myself right out of the faith. But that was the first time I'd been given that, that uh, the, you know, the permission to do it. For my sister, her faith, un- her faith unraveling happened when she was in college and she was taking all these medical classes and it was a biology class. And it was the same sort of thing with me. Uh, her- hers was the exposure to this, this science classes. And she was like, wait, everything I believe is not true. And so it kind of spun her out in the exact same way. I can't speak to my brother. My brother has taken a very much more interesting path. My brother, to get even to his anarchist libertarian views, went through an a intense, heady neocon period, followed by a crazy conspiracy theory. Hurricane <laughs> Katrina was caused by weather satellites. 9-11 was an inside job. Gatorade causes cancer. Um, there, there are... FEMA out, um, oh my FEMA outposts to the woods that they're going to put all the Christians in. Like he went through this thing for years and it was, Oh my God, I liked you better when you worship Ann Coulter. <laughs> but at least that's something that I could understand. <laughs> There's context for that. And wait, he wait, got wait, himself wait, out wait, of that. Wait, and, wait, and, and my mother has actually now wrestled these days with some of those same sort of conspiracy things. And I, and I talked to my brother and I'm like, how do we get her out of this? And he's like, yeah. you can't. You that is the sort of hole you have to take yourself out of because if someone else gets you out of that hole, you're always going to question whether or not that person was lying to you or or whether you'd been misled or something like that. You have to do this for yourself. Um, yeah. So I guess in some ways wow. we've all kind of had a, a shift in critical thinking and and why it's important to life. Yeah, it seems that way. It's it's remarkable when you look at it. I mean, statistically speaking, it's uh I don't have any stats on this, but it seems like you as a family would be the anomaly to have all of the siblings go so far from the roots of the, your family tradition. So the one question I had in in all of this uh if you have you noticed any change in how you believe in things? It sounds like you've you've really opened up your aperture to how you make decisions, uh, take in a lot of information, do more research. You're okay with um, you have the permission to do that. But have you have you thought about any? Have there been any significant differences in how you believe in things? Not what you believe, because obviously you used to believe in a god, now you don't. But is there a difference in the how? in how I believe. Um, I would say that there's always, I question everything. I'm always open to change what I believe based on the accumulation of new evidence. Um, and I frequently told Christian friends that I'm willing to become a Christian again if the evidence is commensurate with the claim made. Um, and I think anybody, any atheist, I, I, I find, I would, I would, Tell I call myself an agnostic atheist. I don't claim to know there is no God because I am a finite piece of matter, a finite bag of meat on a very small planet in one tiny little speck of a galaxy that is one tiny speck of an expanding cosmos that is so unfathomably large that we literally don't know how big it is. So for me to say there is no God is the height of arrogant stupidity. And so I will never make that claim. I do not believe in a God, but I would never claim to say there is no God. And I think any atheist who would make that claim to definitively know it is is as arrogant and ridiculous as the person who claims to know exactly that there is a God and here's his plan for his life and here's why you need to live according to these dictates because they don't know either. And on that thread, the reason I bring that up is I live my life with new evidence. And if new evidence comes along and says, Brandon, you were wrong about X, whether it's faith, whether it's gun control, whether it's whatever, you need to change your mind based on the accumulation of that. So I would say that how I, how I believe now is change. I always kind of have like an open, I'm not close fisted about my belief system. I'm open handed about it. And it kind of rests in the middle of my palm. And I'm always looking around for new evidence 
to adjust, even if it's like, you know, a micrometer here and a micrometer there, or if it's a 360 turn or 180 turn, I should say, I'm always on the lookout for what might switch it. It doesn't mean I'm open-minded and brain falling out sort of thing as the old joke joke was when we were kids. It just means that I, you have to be able to, uh, you have to make course adjustments. I'm laughing at that comment. Um, well, one of the things that I heard one time, this will maybe, we'll, we'll probably start wrapping up here soon. One of the things I had heard I don't remember uh, the philosopher that said it, so I'm going to botch it, but he'll probably be glad that I don't remember his name or her name, whoever it was. But it was, it was an example of, the illustration was that there's an atheist and a, a person of faith on two sides of a stadium, and they're arguing back and forth. They're discussing the differences, and they simultaneously convince one another. And so they walk across the stadium and switch sides. The philosopher was basically saying that nothing has really changed Nothing is different in the universe and nothing is different in them that they're still, although they've attached a new what to their belief, they're still operating almost exactly the same. So I'm always fascinated when people make these big changes, if there was a real big difference in the how behind it, or if there was kind of like, you know, I've I'm more or less been operating with the same principles, not that that's wrong. But those principles have now given me a different focal point and I've arrived somewhere else as a result of them. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I, I, I would push back on that a little bit the, on, on said anonymous philosopher only insofar as when you do make a change and – and I'm going to go back to the faith one just because that is so fundamental. It's the bedrock thing on, on which one bases one's you – know, where one comes from, where, how one should behave – um, and where one's going to go eventually when one dies. So that's what makes that, you know, a whole lot more important than whether or not you believe in gun control or, or whatnot. So for me, it, it, it did fundamentally change me just because I now require evidence for things I believe in. I, I, I will not take something on board unless I'm able to investigate it. And, and it has to meet a certain barrier, a certain threshold of evidence before I, I accept it, before I bring it on board. And that, while that started within my faith, within my deconversion, it now applies to every bit of my life. It certainly applies to my politics. Um, it, it applies to just any, anything in my life. I have to have a good reason to believe it or else I won't believe it. Um, and, and so that, you know, it, that has kind of, it's a different, these are different blinders. It's almost like I've put on goggles that allow me to see the world in a completely different way. Um, and so I would argue that even though I may have switched sides to the other side of the stadium, the manner in which I got there, uh, the, the way the perspective or the, the things I see now, I see things so much richer or deeper or with a certain different complexity or whatnot, um, than I did before. I care. I really care now more about what I believe and how and why. Well, if I, when, when, let's, when I meet that philosopher, I'll, um, I'll give him a piece of my mind for you. <laughs> they were probably dead. I mean, it's the, you know, it's, it's a 17th century philosopher I'm talking sure about football. <laughs> well, Brandon, we, we so appreciate your time. And I, I know there's, I mean, I'm so fascinated by the, some of the career changes and the geography changes, and there's so many other things that we could talk about. So maybe we can have another conversation down the road. Anytime you want, be happy to do it. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, gentlemen. And that is our episode. If you uh, if you liked it, please subscribe. We've got a definitely got more coming. And if you know anyone that we should talk to, please reach out at howhumanschange.com. Uh, thanks so much for listening.